So I just dropped into the valley and just passed through Inyo County. And if you don't know where that is, that's okay. Um, we are on the eastern side of the Sierra Nevada, California. I am, I do this drive a lot. I'm originally from SoCal, that's where my family is, but I live in Northern California, and so this beautiful drive along Highway 395 is where I spend a lot of time, a lot of deep contemplation, a lot of belting guilty pleasure songs, listening to audiobooks, podcasts, thinking about future episodes I want to do for this podcast and just a lot of time to yourself doing this drive. (laughs) I'm about halfway through, a little more than halfway through this nine hour drive, but the timing of this episode couldn't have been more perfect. As I record this the day before my conversation with our guests today, I'm really excited to share this story. It's a hard story though. Before I learned about this story and kind of the the complicated <laughs> the complicated fingers that extend, you know, deeply in this story. Um, you know, I I I looked around at this landscape and I thought it was beautiful, but beautiful for its desolation and harshness. It's rocky, mountainous. This here in Nevada just loom kind of over all the towns here on this side. And it's been a beautiful day, kind of overcast, thunderstorms with sun. So it's been fluctuating in temperature quite a bit. And the hillsides are just swirling with color strata, veins, layers, sediment. It's really beautiful. And I think I see a cop, so I might put my phone away for a second. I really love this area. I feel it's very special. It's pretty magical, pretty beautiful, but once I realized from the film that we're going to talk about today, from the filmmakers, I had no idea that this desolate but beautiful landscape used to be green and lush and filled with water and migratory birds and it was just a completely different ecosystem not that long ago. And there are people still alive today that remember it that way. I took for granted that this landscape always looked like this. I'm about to dip into Lone Pine. Lone Pine is usually where I stop to get gas. I like the owner (laughs) at that gas station. He's really nice. Um, But once you dip into the valley, you can 
kind of get a, a good sense of how different this place used to look. You see the, the scars of the lake, its original level, and you see dead trees that used to be alive, that are just scarecrows uh, around its perimeter now. Looking at my map, Owens Lake looks like this huge, you know, decent-sized lake. <laughs> a lake that should be kind of a destination point. And now in its very center, there's a tiny little remnant of its former self. I don't even think you could call it a lake. Um, it's more of a pool, <laughs> honestly. Um, as I drive through this area now, I contemplate all of these things. Um, it's still beautiful to me, of course, but it has a, a, a twinge of really deep sadness, um, knowing what I know now about this place. But I hope it inspires something within you as you listen to the filmmakers. And I hope you get to check out this film. It's amazing and something that I think should be uplifted, especially for Californians, but it's a, it's a story that I think can be parallel all across the, the United States, all across the country, and all across the world. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with the filmmakers of Manzanar Diverted here on the Earth to Humans podcast with me, your host, Serena Simons. to humans wake up wise up do what you can individually and together my name is Anne Kanekel and I am the director and producer of Manzanar Diverted When Water Becomes Dust um, it's I guess it was me who started this whole process of making this film and, um, you know, because my family was incarcerated during World War II, uh, my parents, my grandparents, I think that this story is very near and dear to me. Um, they weren't at Manzanar, but um, I feel like any anyone who has family or who who knows, you know, who is close to this story, it doesn't really matter where they were incarcerated. It's definitely um, something that they that both unifies, but also was a very difficult um, experience. So um, there's that. And then I'm also um, third generation 
um, from Los Angeles. My grandparents, my gra- on my father's side, my um, grandparents uh, immigrated from Japan to Los Angeles, Tongva lands. Um, and so, again, I have a, a long history with this place and very familiar with drought and, um, you know, those experiences of water. It definitely, my mother especially, I think, really impressed on us that water was precious and that especially in Southern California, we needed to be mindful of the way we use water. So I think those are two, you know, points of interest in terms of why this story was meaningful to me and became um, this longer journey. Um, But I'm a filmmaker and, you know, very, my work is very eclectic. I've done both installations as well as fiction work and nonfiction work. And I also teach media studies at uh, the Claremont Colleges. Hello, I am Jin Yu Kim, and I am the producer as well as the impact producer for Manzanar Diverted, When Water Becomes Dust. Um, I came into this project in 2017 when Anne, who was my mentor in a different program called Armed with a Camera, that's part of Visual Communications Emerging Filmmakers Program. I did that in 2007, the same year Anne did it the first time as a mentor. And so we've known each other for a long time. And uh, 10 years later, Anne asked me to um, take a look at this treatment for this film. And I'm not, you know, I'm Korean. I'm not Japanese. I'm Korean. Um, I was born in Bolivia and uh, I live in the U.S. now. And um, I live in L.A., I lived in LA for my childhood as well as my adult life. But when I read that treatment, I was floored because as someone who lives in Los Angeles, I didn't know any of this stuff. I knew some history of Manzanar as a concentration camp because I took one Asian American studies course in college that touched on it. But I didn't learn about that. Um, I learned very vaguely about Japanese Americans being um, forced into these camps, I think in, in elementary or middle school, but it was literally just like a paragraph in our, in our history books. It wasn't any more than that. And it didn't specify even like names of camps or like where people were going or why, or it was very um, pretty much like a, an afterthought or like a really vague description, but it wasn't until college when I learned about it. And even then I didn't learn about like the depth of concentration camps in the US. People called it internment camps or like there was all these euphemisms around it. Um, I didn't know that a lot of these camps were on native uh, native lands in terms of like reservations or like how they were sharing resources or like what kind of racist infrastructures were put in place that forcibly removed a community that was then reused again to um, detain other communities. So none of this stuff was uh, knowledge at hand, right? And I feel like I'm confident in saying most people who watched our film, they didn't have this knowledge before watching the film either. So no matter what um, expertise you have in whatever community, when you watch the film, you will come away learning something about another community. And I think that is the beauty of this intersectional film. And that's something that I saw at the very beginning was like the impact of the film. And so as someone who lives in Los Angeles, I was like, if I don't know this, most people don't know this. Um, And just by seeing this documentary, people would have learned such an important chapter of LA history. And um, that's something that we're we're still building out in terms of our impact campaign of like what we hope the film will do. And we can talk more about that in a second. But anyways, I guess that's kind of an overview (laughs) 
a long overview of how I came into the project. And I also am a filmmaker myself. Um, I'm transitioning more into directing uh, and I'm really into food stories. So I just finished directing <laughs> an episode of Takeout with Lisa Ling um, that came out at the beginning of this year. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, uh, I love food stories and I love culture stories. And I think I'm always working in this juncture of like immigration, food, um, you know, keeping our family recipes and histories alive. Well, I, I, I mean, just talk about intersectionality. I mean, this is, this is one of the, like this film to me is like the example of an intersectional film. There are so many moving pieces to this film and the story just gets stacked and stacked and more complicated as it goes on. And you just, it, all the pieces kind of come together in this way that's really unexpected. And I just thought that that was just one of the most beautiful things about it. But going back to that early treatment, and can you talk about, I mean, was that early treatment kind of a rough outline of how the story did end up unfolding or was it sort of, it changed a lot as it went on or was it, did you kind of have a, a decent sense of how intersectional this film was actually going to be or, you know what I mean? Or, or, or did it really evolve a lot? I feel like actually all my work is very intersectional. I'm always really interested in thinking about different communities um, in the same space, depending on what the topic is. So, uh, you know, it, it's it's kind of funny to me because people are like, oh, it's intersectional. It's like this this fancy new word that w w everyone is so involved now. But, so in right now, yeah. <laughs> but, but really, I, I mean, I feel like if you look at my other films, they've all been intersectional. And so, and I think that that's why maybe people have been like, huh, how come you have so many things in it? Or like, why are there so many communities in it? And, um, but I, I guess in terms of the, the process with this film, I think it be, definitely, I knew early on that it was going to be a story with these different communities in it. I think that's what really attracted me to it, that this, that this place had these different layers of history and these different communities all interacting together in this one place. And, and the way that these re relationships evolved and changed over time was really interesting to me. So um, I think I had a sense of that, but of course, you know, during the filmmaking process, you never have it all laid out, right? It's all, it's a process. It's again, it's a process of, discovery as you're trying to fit these pieces together. I think early on, I had a sense that the metaphor of water was very important because that was essentially what tied all of these communities together. And so um, I think with every film, I always try to think about some sort of conceptual or metaphorical um, idea that can help to tie the pieces of it together. And so using that either formally or conceptually is always a, a, a way to sort of think about structuring the, the pieces together. So with this film, you know, I think we, we, we did do have many iterations of, of, of how we might structure the film. I mean, there was sort of the chronological 
um, approach. And then there was the more character-based approach, you know, it's like, oh, we don't want to just hear these people talking. We want to know about them. Um, and it, and even though I, I, I knew um, intuitively that probably those weren't going to work, you just have to sort of do it because you, you need to figure out what your story is so it can, so you can really figure out how to, how to put the pieces together. So I think in, in that process, we realized that they were these three communities. And if we could align it around these three communities, then it would make more sense. And so we lost some characters along the way. But even more importantly than that, that this was the story of this land and water. And so that was really the, the, the protagonist of the film. And that was, you know, Paihunadu, Manzanar, that, that land and that water was going to tie all, it would tie all of the threads together and tie all of these people together. And so that's why it became kind of this refrain, these images, and really trying to make that place come alive as we were telling the story. And then the, you know, because be, with all of these communities, there's different story arcs, but it also, um, you know, we, we, we travel through time and it, it's, it's time is, is, is kind of this, I don't know, it's sort of an esoteric concept, right? I mean, we think we're rooted in time, but why not go back in time? Why not go to the, you know, we can time travel. It's fine. I mean, it's, it's, it's part of sort of the way maybe we can conceive of the world. It's not so static. So I think that that also, um, because it was this metaphor of water, it allowed us to time travel as well. Absolutely. And I, I definitely got that sense of Payunadu and water as these characters, these main characters in this film and, and the thread that was holding everything together. And, um, you know, you, you open the film with these, these shots, these beautiful shots of water. And I feel like it just sets the stage immediately for kind of this, the beauty the, you know, and then there, there's kind of whispers of the desolation there in the, the desert area. And, um, but you know, the film is about Manzanar also. And so you're just, you know, at, at the very beginning of the film, you're, all these things are kind of racing through your mind. Like, what is this, what is this film about? And, and it really unfolds over the course. It's like, you don't really know what it's about until, until the end of it, kind of. Um, but for folks who haven't seen the film yet, I wondered if we could kind of just lay out, the, the main players involved here, what kind of the, the, the big pillars of the story, I guess, and, and what we're actually talking about when we're talking about this film. Okay, sure. Um, I always say this, the short version is I always say this is the untold story of Los Angeles water history told from the perspective of communities that were deeply impacted by the resource extraction, which were the Native Americans who were forcibly removed from their land, Japanese Americans who were forcibly incarcerated on that same land, and the environmentalists who live on that land, who, who are part of like all these communities as well. And the three of them coming together to defend their land and water from Los Angeles Department of Water and Power that owns the majority of that land. So really, it's it's these communities of, of people kind of building this hodgepodge coalition to go against this big corporation. And, you know, as as you're 
you're so showing all these beautiful and, and not so beautiful drone shots of this area. Um, there's a lot of barbed wire. There's a lot of fencing. There's a lot of keep out, no trespassing, no loitering signs. I mean, what was that like as you were kind of preparing to put together this film and, and hurdles, I guess, coming, coming up to these barriers in access and how you actually figured out how to navigate covering this story with that kind of, um, opposition that you were up against? I, I think that um, as you travel that land, you know, the presence of LADWP is, is, is everywhere. You know, it's so funny because you're like driving along and you see all of these LADWP trucks, right? Or, you know, there's a office building in Lone Pine. There's one in Bishop, all LADWP. So there's some workers along the side of the road and they're LADWP. Um, and, and they are very protective of, you know, land uh, a- and what they're doing there, because I feel like they, you know, it's it's a complicated story and their their presence there is very complicated. So, I, I mean, you know, it's open land. It's not like people are, are out to get you or anything, but. You know, it's it's interesting as you were talking about driving up and down the 395. I think, and myself, I think um, I used to go hiking up in the Mammoth area, and so my friend and I we would go up and down the 395, and we always were so amazed that it was just this open land for so many miles. Right? It's just a a stunning drive, mm-hmm. and. Um, but when I was really learning this history, I realized, oh, my gosh, it's open land because the city of Los Angeles owns all that land. And so, I mean, on the one hand, you know, you realize, oh, they're pumping out all of this water, but they also have saved it from development. So it's a very odd kind of, you know, I won't say I mean, there's certainly been devastation on that land because of the impacts of of pumping that water, you know, dust that, you know, drying up an entire lake that was the third largest lake in in the state of California. So there's but it is kind of this, you know, very complex history and, you know, and these landscapes that you're kind of puzzled by, you, 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 you drive by um, Paziata or the Owens Lake and it's, you know, sort of white and dusty and you're like oh what was that or you know it looks like they're mining something there I I don't know but then there are all these weird rows of things and you know these other construction vehicles and so but of course in the film it's all revealed why that is why those things are there because that's the lake that's the lake that now they have to mitigate the dust um so, I, I mean, I, I don't feel like there were so many roadblocks to tell this story in, it, in that if you know people, you can sort of try to find people who will tell these stories. I mean, I will say that with the Los Angeles Department and Water and Power, we did do an interview with, um, you know, one of the officials. He was the aqueduct manager. Um, and it took us a long time to sort of get permission to actually interview him. And people always wonder, I was like, well, why, why, why isn't DWP in the film, right? But really what he had to add was not so useful. I mean, it wasn't so helpful because it was kind of the things we already knew. People talked about it. And the film is really not from the perspective 
of, of LADWP. It's the perspective of the people who have been impacted by LADWP. So, um, you know, I think it was important for us to take those steps and, 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 and really kind of document and explore that possibility of including that in the film. But, um, we ultimately decided not to include that those that interview in, and I, you know, I, I tried to also um, approach the the president, the board of commissioners, president um, um, Mel Levine, and I think also he was, you know, he, and he has a long history with Manzanar because he was involved in the establishment of his his as a historic site. He was a assemblyman at the time, and so he was instrumental in a you know, and establishing Manzanar. And so I thought, oh my gosh, it would really be awesome to interview him because he has so, such a deep appreciation and long history with this place. But ultimately, I think because the film does sort of traverse these more contemporary issues, um, LADWP, you know, said, oh no, I think better not for him to speak to us. So, you know, that's fine. We're respectful, but, um, you know, I think those were the, the the bigger sort of maybe obstacles that we had. But in general, I feel like, um, you know, and and for the most part, the film is just telling history. It's just recounting history. So that's really interesting. Um, now that you said that, I, I I didn't even realize that that piece was missing because, like you said, it is just sort of retelling history. It was almost an unnecessary addition, I feel like, Um you're just left with all this evidence in front of you, anecdotal, memory, physical, like there's just, there's just so much evidence stacked against the story against LADWP. Like you really didn't need, it, it just, it kind of spoke for itself, like you said. So um, that's, that was really interesting now that you say that, but um, you know, so Pai Hunadu and Owens Valley, Owens Lake area, the like a big thread was just this this forced removal of the indigenous community and then forced removal of Japanese Americans into this space. So there's just a lot of force forcing the water out of the of the earth and down into Los Angeles. There's just a lot of of forced removal and movement that happens there. Um, the way that you're all you kind of kind of pad the story with these beautiful characters that add kind of a softness to this really harsh story was really beautiful. And a lot of women too, which I really appreciated. I wondered if you guys could talk about that and those characters and, and um, kind of what you learned as you went with them. I mean, the women are the caretakers of the land, but also the caretakers of the stories. And they're the ones who are passing this down from generations and it wasn't really hard right to find these people because they were the ones who were working there and and the thing that really connects all these um, women activists together were that they were part of a bigger lineage right like Kathy like her great-grandmother lived there and she was just always going to be there taking care and protecting land and water Uh, Monica Embry was the granddaughter of Sue Kunitomi Embry who wanted to, her whole life's work was trying to get Manzanar designated as a historic site. And um, and the Master Sisters, like they are also, in the shorter cut, we don't see much of him, but um, their father's name's Keith Bright. And he had um, a major role in, in uh, fighting for that land um, 
against so much water removal. And I think that all these people are just living legacies and living descendants of people who have come before them, who have been doing that work, and they're continuing to do that work. They happen to be women, which was amazing. <laughs> there are some men, too, that were in the film, and uh, we lost a couple on the way, too, in the editing process. But organically, uh, we really felt like these three women, these three communities represented by women made sense to us. We weren't even like trying to force it to happen. It just kind of organically happened, which was really nice. I think that's that's true everywhere, though. I mean, my work in kind of the environmental space and social justice space, the leaders are by and far, far and by, what is, what's the term? Far, by, by, anyway. <laughs> The the, the leaders are are usually women. Uh, Let's just put it that way. You know, I mean, they're the outspoken ones because we're mothers. You know, we're mothers, we're grandmothers, we're aunties. We take care of our families. We're teachers. So um, and not to say that there aren't men who also take on that those roles, but it's probably much more women than men. So um, it's no accident. And I think you know, the, the, the activists who we've encountered in other places, in Southern California, in Los Angeles itself, by and large have been women. And also, I think there is a disparity in power in the sense of like, we always hear from men who are the activists from these communities, like we know who they are. But behind every man who is outspoken and gets the spotlight, there's probably like 10, 15 women who are not getting the spotlight. And so it's really interesting, like we really wanted this film to like platform some of these women who've been honestly doing this work for their whole lives, their parents' lives. And not all of them have had the recognition that they deserve for all the work that they've been doing. So um, and even even behind these women, there are like plenty of other women also who are not being um, spotlighted. So it's it, it was maybe like not a conscious move on our part being like, oh, we must spotlight these women who are not getting the, the recognition they deserve but in so doing like we really felt like how many times in the past before before this documentary have they been um you know publicly recognized for their work absolutely um that also made me think of sort of just the just the timing of this project um when i watched the film for the first time one of the things that really stuck with me it was the um the the ma- the master sisters it was the, the two sisters and they were talking about and I think I wrote it down it was just sort of like the um, the role of memory and these women are in their sixties now but like the the ploy of LADWP was to outlive the people that remember what this land used to look like um, and and that was also true with the folks at who were interned at Ma- at Manzanar you know I feel like this moment in time, you know, 10 years from now, I don't think this film could have been made in the same way because we would have lost people like physically would have lost them. Um, a lot of these folks are, are aging people and a lot of these stories live on in, in their memories alone. And so it, I just felt like the timeliness of this story to be able to, to film these folks, you know, when, when they, are able to speak and are able to still remember and are still here and they're still alive to share their stories was really impactful. And, and yeah, I, I just, I just don't think, I, I don't know. I just feel like the timing was really important for this story to be told. 
you know, it's so true. Uh, I, I mean, in the film, we have interviews with Henry Nishi. He was 98 when I interviewed him and he was sharp as a tack. But, you know, he passed away a couple years later. Um, and even Madeline, who, you know, Madeline is still very alive, but um, I think her memory loss, it, she's not the same. She wouldn't be able to talk about these things in the same way. So, and, and you know, that that quote of Nancy's, I think, really is about the story, all of these stories, right? And and I think in terms of the Native American community, you know, the with it at Big Pine, you know, COVID's been really hard on 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 the tribes and the nations in in Payahunadu. They've lost a lot of folks, um, folks that in, in fact that I interviewed, um, and so it's it's really. I think in, that shows the importance of documenting stories and, 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 and getting down these stories because, you know, our lives aren't, you know, we, we don't live forever. One of the things that was really moving just, just last Monday, I was there for the um, commemorative run of the forced March and um, Sean, who's one of the TIPOs, one of the um, tribal historic preservation officers was reading from this document um, about uh, Patsiara because, you know, Patsiara, they've just, they're in the process of getting um, Patsiara recognized as a historic site. And it's, it's, it's do, the process is going really well. And, um, you know, he was reading these passages and, you know, through some anthropologists that were in the area, they had interviews with people who remembered the force march or who had been part of the force march because these were these were interviews that were done you know early early 20th century and so so moving to feel that connection with that history i mean it really isn't that long ago it's just that our lives now are moving so rapidly because of the internet and social media that we feel like, oh, yesterday seems like forever. That was a long time ago. But really our lives, time still is moving in the same way and in terms of generations. In fact, we're living longer. You know, we have these longer generations. So it's not that long ago. Um, and, you know, we have to learn from our histories. I mean, unless we do, I mean, we're just going to keep repeating the same same kind of mistakes. I mean, isn't that what they always teach you in school? So um, I think that, you know, certainly Nancy's comment really um, is about all of these communities. It's about water. It's about the land and water. It's about uh, Japanese American incarceration. It's about Native American, the you know, Native American resilience in the face of, of, of what they've experienced. And it also is kind of like a call to action for the next generation to step in as well, because, you know, as I mentioned before, like a lot of our characters are part of a lineage of activists, but uh, this film is also intergenerational on top of being intersectional because we try to highlight that you're passing the torch down to the next generation. And, you know, even if the main characters in our film are aging and their memories are not going to outlive LADWP, 
they have um, kids who are also very active. Um, and we hope that whoever sees this film, like young people, especially, they would be like so angry by this. This is a very angry part of our history that we really need to inspire younger folks to step into some of these roles that our elders are leaving behind, right? Um, and so, yeah, it's in, in a way, this this part that you mentioned is, to me, when I view it as a viewer, I'm like, that that is a call to action to the next generation. You know, also in terms of Nancy and Mary, whose legacy they inherited from their father and Keith Bright, who, you know, he's not in the broadcast version, but, you know, in the longer version, he's there. But, you know, the, Nancy's daughter is is actually Rose Masters, who is the, the park ranger. So right there again, you see these generations who who take on this this legacy and keep keep up the work. But I guess how does it feel to knowing all of that to have this film that is sort of serving as this archive of memory and that it is this living history that people can look back on and refer to 10, 20, 50 years from now and look back on your film as a moment in history. I think that was one of the things that uh, when I first read the treatment, I was like, this has to be a resource, not just a film, but this has to be a place where people can go to, to cite it for their own research, for people to go into deeper history, right? And so we we want to be that. We want to be a place where people come to, to gain more knowledge, to educate themselves, to go on and create deeper work with this. Um, I guess I'll plug the interactive website that we're building. Great, great timing. <laughs> Organic transition to it. We um, Part of our goal when we were making the film was always to have a companion website to go along with it because we knew that this film was going to end up becoming a resource for people. So um, on www.manzanardiverted.com, we are building out an interactive map. Um, I'll let Anne speak more on that in a second. We also have educational curriculum discussion guides for people to ask themselves deeper questions as they're hosting screenings or watching it together with, you know, their class or, you know, friends and family. We are also going to include film clips that didn't make the final film for various reasons, because, again, tightening up a story and editing doesn't mean that um, these other interviews were less important. It just didn't fit within the structure of this film that we were creating. But those interviews were so, so rich in material and information and, again, more intersectional connections. Um, So those are all going to be on the website as well. And uh, we just had a day of action the day before our broadcast on Sunday And we brought together over 10 organizations to talk about what they were working on. You know, Manzanar is an example of what happened in Southern California, but similar things have happened across the U.S. So it was really interesting to hear from other organizations, other Japanese American um, camps that had kind of similar tie-ins with Native American history and resource extraction. And so that is also live on our website that could also be used as research material. Um, and I will let Anne talk more about the interactive map because she's been like super hands-on with it. Um, so we were very fortunate in getting PBS SoCal to come on board. So they're helping us to build this map. But um, it's a map of all of the federally recognized reservations, Native American reservations in the United States, overlaid with the with Japanese American um, confinement sites. And then there are 
sort of summaries of highlighted places that where these intersections, where there are real clear intersections of these histories, along with kind of environmental stories. So I, I will say for me, doing this deep dive into this, um, you, you know, research and learning about all these other places, it's been so eye-opening because, you know, both Native American, you know, confinement, which basically reservations are, um, and Japanese American confinement have been administered by the federal government for the most part, you know, so it's all government entities. And so these intersections are through these public institutions like the, you know, the U.S. Army or the Bureau of Reclamation or um, the INS, um, you know, in terms of detaining, incarcerating these different communities these are the organiz- you know these are the entities that have been involved in this and so in this map you really see how these these histories intersect in that way and so it gives you a kind of, it's very eye opening in terms of sort of the institutional and structural racism that has existed in our country for centuries what's the movement on these histories being taught in schools, I guess, on the local level in LA and beyond the state and the rest of the country? I am not a teacher, but I do have... Yes, you are. (laughs) I mean, I I, I am a professor. I'm sorry, but I'm not a teacher within the public. You know, I'm not a K through 12 teacher. Um, Yeah, I teach teach at the Claremont Colleges, so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, but um, um, so my daughter is just about to go into sixth grade, right? So we've just been through fourth grade is California history, right? And then fifth grade, they're supposed to learn about another aspect of California history. And I know, I mean, she goes to Culver City schools and certainly like, um, you know, the the mission system and the, the 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 Spanish explorers are sort of taught, but I think there are efforts to sort of revamp it in a way that's, you know, really looking at these longer histories and reframing it. Um, I know that I think, I believe it's like an 11th grade um, that they also have to talk about Japanese American incarceration, but you know, I, I I do teach at the university level, and I was very surprised when I surveyed my students how many of them knew about Japanese-American incarceration. And even in an Asian-American media class where most of the students were Asian-American, there were several that said they did not learn about it. And so they would have just gone through, um, you know, school, you know, school. So um, I... At this moment in time, with sort of so much revision in history and so many divisive forces, I don't know what the status is everywhere, but hopefully they will, that this history will be taught. But I'm sure that there are also forces um, who don't want this history taught. Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, bureaucratic uh, red tape when it comes to education. However, if you are a teacher, 
or a library and you do want to teach it, there's ways to not just our documentaries, but with other documentaries, go to the educational distributor website. Ours is gooddocs.com and um, and just request a documentary, pay the licensing fee, show it to students. And most of these documentaries do come with discussion guides. So there is still a way to incorporate it within um, your own teaching curriculum, even if it's not part of like the standard like you know, agenda that you have to adhere to. And our film, oh, and I was just going to plug the film. And our film, of course, is going to be streaming for the next month on PBS. So, you know, students, teachers, you can all watch it right now. That's great. And we will definitely plug all of that in our show notes and at the end. But um, I mean, this this ties in with a huge hot hot button issue that's going on right now with critical race theory, taking this kind of curriculum out of schools, erasure of history. Um, and I mean, it's really, it's really wild when we start to filter out things that actually happened, um, actual history, um, for the sake of not making kids feel bad, but I feel like kids get it. Like, I feel like, this new generation of kids, they want to learn, they want to know, they understand. And it's not something that, you know, when they, I think when they learn about white privilege, that they're like taking it personally and, and then having this, this, this heavy white guilt about their, their ancestors and their past. I think it's actually very mobilizing. And I think it's actually, um, you know, a really misunderstood issue right now. And I, I'm, I'm so glad that, you know, it's not just this film, but all these resources that you have created to go and accompany this film, because I think, I think that's where we're going to really make a, a, a wide impact is, is in the schools teaching these forgotten and intentionally forgotten histories, you know, and, um, so I, I, I just I really want to applaud applaud you both again and everyone else on this film because it really is like you've created this holistic film and then you've created this holistic action plan after the film, which I just feel like a, a film like this just so deserves and is so needed. But um, just to kind of wrap up, because I don't want to take up all of your day, but, you know, you the, the kind of the, the last sort of act or the last portion of the film is this really beautiful discussion on on water as resistance and water, you know, in, in the first chunk of the film as this huge contentious issue, this divisive issue. Um, and then you kind of talk about how water was used within Manzanar as this really beautiful form of resistance. And I wondered if you could kind of talk about that a little bit. I think that the, you know, that notion of resistance is really what is so common among all of these communities of, you know, particularly BIPOC communities, right? Native, indigenous, Japanese American. It's like, that's that notion of resilience, right? And that you keep, you keep at it no matter what in the face of whatever insurmountable odds you are, you have that, that you're going to keep keep making your own life better in the way that you can. And so, you know, what, just piggyback, piggybacking off of what you were just talking about, you know, there's a, I have a colleague, David Pello, who talks about critical environmental justice, right? So it's really talking about environmental justice in the context of black and brown communities who really are often the ones who are um, 
you know, as we face climate change, you know, the 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 impacts of what is happening, the 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 bad air, the the contaminations, the people who are most impacted are black and brown people, right? And so it's that's where, you know, there's critical race theory, but then it's critical environmental justice as well, that we need to acknowledge who is being impacted as we race into this catastrophe called climate change. And so I think that, um, but at the same time, this notion of resistance is just so important. We can't, we, we have to be hopeful that there are ways of, of, of overcoming, of, of doing what we can so that we have a better world for our children. It's ultimately our children, our grandchildren, our great grandchildren. It's the next generations. And so we can't, we have to stop thinking about our world in this sort of present tense way in short term, in this so short, such a short term way. Right. And so, um, you know, the film looks at memory, but what, where does memory take us? It takes us to the future. And so I think that it's really bridging our, our memory with our future. And that's where, you know, our action in this moment is so critical. I wonder how it feels for you both. You know, you just had an event kind of in that area recently. Uh, having completed this film and, and still working on this living project, but how does it feel to kind of be in that space now given all that you've learned, all the information that you've digested, people that you've spoken to, um, you know, one of the other elements of this story that was surprising to me that I didn't even really think about was the dust and PM 2.5. So when you have a dry lake bed and lots of wind, it's picking up all these small particulates that are then blowing into these communities. People are inhaling and it's giving them a lot of health problems that could ultimately kill them. So we have all these layers in this story, but um, that was that was a really surprising layer. So not only do you have the, the lack of water in these communities, um, indigenous tribes fighting to, ac- to access their own water, um, you have this lingering health issue going on too. And, and just, just the scar on the landscape too, of just this dry, white, crusty, you know, it, it's just hard to imagine, you know, California's third largest lake. It's hard to imagine that we don't understand that that's, that's what we're looking at when we look at that landscape. And what does that bring up for you now when you look out, when you drive through, when you, you know, continue to work on these projects in these communities? What goes through your head as you look at Pahunadu? I think for me, since, you know, it's it's probably been me who's who's had this long, long, very long-term relationship now with this place. Um, I feel a lot of love for that place. I have a lot of relations with the people and the communities who live there. I mean, I was just, as I mentioned, I was just up there for the this commemorative run and really, you know, being there and thinking about the forced removal, you know, as we were running or we we encountered a point you know, on, on, on one of the pathways where people had walked, you know, when they were on that 200 mile forced removal march. So that those people from the past, they're still there on the land. You know, you still see 
evidence remnants of those people and their spirits are on that land. I feel like if you go to Manzanar, you feel those ghosts. At the lake, you feel those ghosts of those people, the spirits. Maybe ghosts isn't the wrong word. We have a, you know, it's kind of pejorative in some ways. But to me, it's like ghosts, spirits. There are relatives. There are, you know, there are family. And so I feel like when whenever you, when I'm there, I feel like I'm surrounded by family. Um, you know, that place is is I have a relationship with just as I have a relationship here in Los Angeles. And so with family, it's always, there are good things and bad things. There are, it's complicated. It's not all sad and it's not all happy. Um, but it, but there's a deep, deep appreciation and an understanding. And I think that's what um, we can all have for, for our world. And if we feel, if we look at our world in that way, then maybe we can, you know, really work towards preserving our world before we destroy it. Mm. Very well said. And, um, you know, Manzanar means apple orchard in Spanish. And you touch on the film too about sort of that beautiful relationship that formed between the indigenous community and those that were incarcerated at Manzanar about how fertile the land was, you know, they were able to grow so much produce to, to, to feed their community because they were forced to, <laughs> right. They were forced to grow their own food and feed their own communities. Um, but that that land has so much fertility to it and that it isn't this dead, dry thing that's been tapped out, that it has the potential to, um, for life to be kind of brought back into it and that it, it, we can still have that kind of relationship that, that folks remember. And I, I think that I'm hopeful that that will happen for that area. And I hope that, you know, through this film, folks watching it, um, that they can kind of see the the potential for what the landscape can look like again. And, and I, and I really hope that that does happen. I mean, I, as I've been doing, as I've been working on this map, <laughs> I was just in fact reading about um, some folks, you know, the Colorado river, the story of the Colorado river is very similar. You know, it's so Los Angeles gets its water from three different rivers, three different reservoirs or three different aqueducts, excuse me. Um, so the Colorado River Aqueduct, I mean, there are Japanese-American confinement sites there, Gila River and Poston. And, and the indigenous people in those areas, you know, there has been some restoration. And, you know, I was just reading this morning how somebody said, once you bring water back to a place, it returns. The, the land grows again. So, you know, hopefully as Los Angeles finds a way to become more self-sufficient and, and import less water, that we can re return the water to some of these aquifers so that the land can grow again. So, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that perhaps that we can, you know, we'll figure that out. Um, but at the same time, you know, we always are racing to look for, you know, solutions through science. But at the same time, we have to be mindful, really, of these histories and these cultures and these communities and what we did so that these solutions that we find aren't creating 
another problem. Right. Not every solution is a technological solution. I mean, if, literally, if we just let the water be, then maybe that's the solution. It's doing less than more. <laughs> yeah. Letting the water be. I love that. And I think on that note, we will kind of end. Anne, Jin, thank you so much, both of you, for your time and for this film. Um, wondered again if you could uh, kind of let us know again where folks can watch this film for this month. Um, and where we can find more info about you and the project. So we are streaming for a month on, until August 18th, and you can catch it on the pbs.org website. Or if you have the PBS app, you can download, you can watch it through there as well. And if you want to learn more about the film and then some of the resources we're gathering with film clips, the interactive map, discussion guides, and even how to host your own screening, you can go to our website, which is www.mansonardiverted.com. I believe through PBS, you can have the uh, community screenings right now as well. So, you know, I feel like there's many opportunities to see the film and share the film. A huge thank you to today's guests for joining us on this episode of the Earth to Humans podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want more insight into our episodes, you can follow us on Instagram at Earth to Humans Pod. Today's episode was produced and edited by me, Serena Simons, and today's music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you.